previously on Age of Legends Downfall. Rad and L made their way into the city of Majin as discreetly as they could. L chose aliases and a fake backstory that Red was none too thrilled about. After delivering Hannah's message to her son, he allowed them to stay in one of his smaller rooms with a view of the Majin Research Center across the street. Our two heroes settled in for the night and L had a powerful dream that showed her something she didn't quite understand but left her shaken. Uh, so she is probably going to stay awake for the rest of the night to try and ponder this. And I think part of what she's going to do is she's going to sit at her bed and kind of peek out her curtains at the research institute as she thinks about what all of this means. Her sister, the scrawling, the fact that people have been compelled um, around her. Okay. As you're sitting there thinking about basically everything that's going on and kind of getting the feeling that you might be in over your head a little bit, um, you see the sun start to come up. And uh, as you sort of peek out to see uh, it just cresting the horizon and, and putting light into this beautiful city, you see the streetlights are starting to go out and you can see some folks shuffling around the town square, uh, some of them going into these universities, some of them traveling into the research center. You recognize these folks just based off of uh, their pace, that these are the early risers. These are the folks that, despite whether or not they're a morning person, are going to be at the buildings before anyone else is because they want to make sure that they are going to be the best. You recognize it because that's what you do. Uh, and as the sun starts to get further and further up the horizon, you see more and more people and you realize that there's a lot of folks that are sort of filtering in. As you have the realization that folks are, are coming to the inn, you start to smell uh, the most delicious thing you've smelled on your journey so far because everything about me revolves around food. Um, but you smell breakfast being cooked downstairs. It kind of reminds you of breakfast back home, um, but it's definitely a different scent, something that must be regional to Majin, uh, but it's starting to make your stomach growl a little bit more. I think knowing how early it is and how tired Red had looked, um, I'm going to let him sleep. But at this point with the unease that's building up with how alone she's felt in the city where she doesn't know anybody, she feels that she needs to be around people. And so even though all of this is kind of swirling in her mind, she gets up, um, kind of like leaves the bed that she hasn't slept in and goes downstairs, hoping to one, get breakfast, but also hoping to kind of get the like relief that she almost gets and like the energy that she gets from being around people. Okay. Um, as you walk past all the doors, uh, you definitely hear the sounds of folks sleeping, some really loud snoring going on, and you know that you're still an early riser, even though some folks have gotten the jump on you, so to speak, on the day. And like deep down, you're like, I was awake before any of them, even if it's because I was <laughs> terrified last night. So you come down the stairs. The common room is fairly empty, but there's a lot of folks sitting at the bar and they all seem to be just sort of eating. Um, some folks are just talking to each other about things that they're about to go do. As you enter and you see these folks, um, your passive perception, uh, you notice the fact that someone is sitting at this bar eating uh, who is wearing the same uniform as folks that you have seen go into the research center across the street. In fact, it seems to be a uniform of some sorts of folks that actually have access there. Uh, I am going to go to the bar to order my breakfast 
and I'm going to very subtly, like, pretend that I upend his drink. Okay, roll a deception on that one. I'm good at that. 16. So he is so engrossed in eating his food that as soon as you um, make this nudge that you are, are trying to hide that is intentional, uh, it tips his drink over, and you see his hands move forward as if he's going to catch the drink, and they move right past it, and they pick his plate up over his head. It's, it's like he's trying to protect his breakfast, and the drink spills directly into his lap, and he mutters with a mouthful of food. He just says, oh, bloody hell. I am so sorry, sir. I am so sorry. Let me buy you another drink. I really apologize. I haven't had my morning coffee. Um, I'm just about to order it. I really apologize. Um, who's behind the bar? The chef is actually the one that's behind the bar right now, and she sort of chuckles, and she says, don't worry about it, and she starts filling up his drink, and it seems to be this uh, just really deep, black, strong-scented coffee. Um, you can tell that he must have uh, done something to his coffee because it didn't scald him when it fell into his lap, and uh, as soon as you have that realization, she sort of pours some water into it, uh, and she says, this is one of the first times I've ever seen you not just drink this immediately when you got here. Uh, and he says back to her, it's it's biscuits and gravy day. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to focus on the biscuits and gravy. And as this conversation is passing between them, you can see he's really not too concerned. The gentleman next to him gets up and sort of walks away, leaving this empty stool. Uh, and she looks over at you and she says, will you be having breakfast today, miss? Uh, yes, actually, biscuits and gravy sounds great. And I will have what he's having to drink. She says, okay. So she goes in the back. She brings out a plate. In that time, uh, you notice that this individual next to you uh, starts sort of like motioning his hands, not in a, an extravagant way, in a, a fairly mundane way, in fact. But you feel cold chills run up your arms. And in this moment, you realize this man can channel. Uh, and he's sort of just lifting the moisture from his uh, clothes. And he just sort of brings it out. He's able to just sort of put it into a bucket be behind the bar and in seeing that some folks sort of avert their eyes like they don't want to pay any attention to it other folks are just you know this is something that's commonplace they've seen people channel all the time and he says to you no harm no foul and he sort of motions to the stool next to him uh, I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna kind of like look at him a little bit and say you know sir you look like um, like you may work or be associated with the research institute here at Magin. Is that is that correct? He kind of laughs and he says, you're you're not from around here, are you? It's uh, no. pretty obvious. Yeah, so, uh, you know, my, um, my traveling companion and I, we are actually traveling bards. Um, we both have our specialties. His is juggling. Mine is actually reciting poetry um, and, you know, long... Um, odes and things like that. My goal in life is to hopefully learn every single poem there is um, under the sun and every single ode there is out there. Now, my understanding is that the Research Institute is a great place of learning, not just for uh, what you're able to do, but also for things like the histories and the poetry and, and, the, and you know, the oral history of the world. And so my hope is to be able to go there and hopefully learn a little bit. What do you think is the best way for me to be able to get in? So I'm going to go ahead and keep your previous deception check when you're telling him you're a bard. Um, he just sort of buys into it. He seems sort of excited that someone's asking him questions about his job. Uh, and he says, well, to be honest with you, there's a lot of research facilities in Majin. Um, however, the one that I work at is across the street. I don't know if it's going to be pertinent to what you're looking for because we primarily study artifacts. We're not typically going hmm. through the histories of the past, but we're definitely going through the artifacts of previous cultures. Now, if you want to get in, 
they do tours uh, and you'll be able to get access to the first floor which is where all the freshmen at the local universities are able to come in and learn there's a lot of lecture halls you can actually go and observe uh, if you would like to and sort of audit aside from that the second floor is for uh, upperclassmen and grad students and the third floor is restricted access and that is for employees of the research institute and there we do some of the most cutting edge research and as he says this you're realizing he's trying to impress you uh, we do some of the most cutting edge research when it comes to artifacts of ancient civilizations in the world that's is amazing she's gonna play into it just like wow that is amazing you know i wow you're so neat mister wow that's so cool now obviously you know i'm a bard i do poetry and and music and things like that i don't pretend to be a scholar of history but i've always had a little uh you know love of history on the side um and of course i would love to see some of these artifacts you know sometimes people write poetry on urns and on their artifacts and these are the ones that are the most difficult to come by. Uh, you know, I, I know you said this was something that people would not be able to get into the general public. I understand that. I, I totally get that. But scholar to scholar, what would it take for, for someone to be able to see something so amazing, like on that third floor? On the third floor? Uh, and he ponders it for a moment and he just sort of taps uh, on this tag that's sort of pinned to his outfit. Um, and it says uh, level three access. Hmm. So as aside from becoming an employee and uh, getting clearance to the top level, there's really no exceptions that can be made. I, I regret to inform you of that. And you notice as he taps this sort of uh, research access level three tag, it has the name Corbin on it. Um, and because he has access to floors one, two, and three, as is stated by the pass, the bottom of it has a tag on it that says multi-pass. Corbin, all right. Um, I see his name on there and I say, Corbin, thank you so much. I totally understand that. I, you know, of course there are places where just the general public just cannot go. I, I totally understand. Now you seem to be really enjoying these biscuits and gravy. Is, is this like the place that you go for breakfast every day? Not every day, but on biscuits and gravy day, I'm going to be here. It's the best biscuits and gravy in Majin. It's the best. I, I mean, I'm really excited to try it. Now, what days are biscuits and gravy day? Just so I know. I don't know if they run a typical seven-day week, but let's say they do. Um, I don't know if they have the same names. I just want to know when he's going to come back, essentially. Oh, they only have Biscuits and Gravy Day once a week. Um, so I will be here if you want to say hello to me or if you want to pop by and take the first floor tour. I could probably come down and say hi. And uh, in this moment, as you're sort of just like shuffling and, and keeping your hands in just like a proper position because when you're having a social interaction there's always the question of what do i do with my hands um your hands rest on your satchel and you feel the angriel in your satchel that mistress gave you and it sort of occurs to you that that dream last night almost seems like premonition and you have the thought that if you were to use this even discreetly this gentleman would probably do whatever you asked of him very quietly, I'm going to lean in and I'm going to say, Corbin, now as a scholar of the artifacts, uh, you must understand how rare certain things are. And I've actually come by, uh, don't ask me how, but I, I've come by a, a really rare artifact and, and you seem like someone who would appreciate it. Would you like to see? Well, yes. And he seems like 
kind of confused and befuddled, but also genuinely curious. He, he puts down his utensils. You're the first thing that's broken through his defense, and he stopped shoveling his breakfast into his mouth. So very, um, you know, gingerly, I kind of take out this horse totem that Mistress has given me, the Angriel, and I kind of, uh, I don't set it on the table, but I kind of put it under where the bar would be, and just to show him so that only he and I can see it. And I say, this is an ancient artifact, and I think that you, of all people, should see it and as a little favor, you're going to let my friend and I onto the third floor, and I'm going to try and charm him. Okay. You will rethink your life. I will rethink my life. <laughs> so, Would you uh, like to buy some death sticks? I was going to say, he puts away his death sticks. So you cast uh, this form of charm person on him in D&D speak. However, it is the most amplified form of charm person. In fact, essentially yeah. what you're casting is similar to charm person or suggestion. However, it is not the compulsion that exists within 5e. It is the compulsion that exists within Wheel of Time, uh, which is bad, bad stuff. Uh, and as you reach into this uh, Angriel and you uh, reach out to him because he is sitting directly next to you, you realize that this sort of flows through you and upon making physical contact with him, uh, it sort of just leeches into his body. This is something that as you're casting, you realize only the people of the strongest wills would have any sort of chance at resisting. It's, it's almost a little frightening to you of how sure you are that this is going to work. And sure enough, as soon as you make contact with him, um, you sort of feel the threads of power that you've been weaving through uh, and channeling into him sort of just take hold. And you see his eyes just sort of change as if you're just one, his best friend he's ever met and the most beautiful thing in the world. And he looks at you and he says, I will do whatever you want me to. If you and your friend want to go to the third floor, we are going to make it happen. Um, and he still has his utensils in his hands and he sort of stands up and he says, are you ready? And he hasn't even set them down. Uh, well, you know what? Let me go get my friend. Why don't you sit here? You finish your biscuits and gravy. I mean, obviously okay. I and he sits down and he just starts eating right away and he's still listening to you while he's eating. You know, uh, I know this is like one of the your be your favorite breakfasts. Um, but Burs. wait for me here. <laughs> wait for me here. I'll be back with my friend. And, uh, you know, once we finish our breakfast, we can go. I'll wait right here. All right. And she's going to go back. Um, well, I, I guess she's going to, like, kind of see if her biscuits and gravy is ready. And if it's not, she's going to go back and grab uh, Red to come down. So as, as this whole scene's playing out, after compulsion has been cast on this gentleman... Uh, the chef comes back out and she has your biscuits and gravy and your coffee, which is just hot enough where it's still nice and hot, but not so hot that it's going to scald you. And she sets it down in front of you and she's sort of looking over at Corbin like, what the hell is he doing? And you can kind of pick up from her face. She thinks he's just really into you and he's making an ass of himself, how he's tripping over everything that you're saying. And she just sets it down and she just shakes her head and she says, men. And she sort of walks to the back to grab some other patron's breakfast. Corbin, would you mind just making sure that no one eats my breakfast? He looks at you dead in your face, and he has this dangerous look in his eyes. And he says, no one will eat your breakfast. Thank you, Corbin. I'll be right back. <laughs> and I'm going to go okay. grab bread. <laughs> and he just watches you walk by, and you realize he has stopped eating. And he's holding his knife in his hand, and he's looking at your breakfast, and he's eyeballing everyone in the room as you walk away. You know, so much for being subtle. <laughs> And Garrett's just shaking his head. Uh, yeah, so I, I go and I, I, I wake up Red. I'm going to go knock on his door. Rise and shine. Red awakes. 
he's what time of day is it like is it like very early hours at this point i think the latest it would be is like 7 30 you yeah. know our time like the sun's up but it's still definitely early morning yeah he was pro wow are you kidding me i'm legit such good acting dude <laughs> yeah. Holy oh God. my gosh and the, and the oscar award <laughs> i thought that was you acting i didn't realize it was a real yawn <laughs> no red i think would have been this is the, he's he's an early riser in the first place but you know with everything that has happened and the lack of sleep he you know slept in a little bit here but yeah he's it's not like he's being roused from a deep sleep he's twilighting right there anyway so knock on the door he's up and rolls out and so i have some great news what's up while you were sleeping i got us breakfast oh i got me breakfast you can get your own breakfast but the biscuits and gravies <laughs> are, are is apparently delicious here as well as the coffee so that's number one Number two, I might have gotten us a way into, and I kind of like do a little like point kind of in the direction of the, of where the research institute is. Hey, when I, when I say be discreet, you don't need to be discreet with me. So like, but I'm always just discreet. say, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying to me right now. I just woke up. I mean the, and I kind of like say it really quietly to hopefully, cause like, you know, she still kind of got the feeling that maybe there's someone watching her. She's like, Research Institute. Okay, yeah. But more importantly, breakfast. And also, I met this great guy. His name's Corbin. He's going to show us around. Discretion means, like, low profile means, like, don't talk to a whole lot of people unless you have to. We already met two people in here. We were seen by a whole bunch of people in that kitchen, and I was embarrassed a lot. And now you come up first thing in the morning saying you met somebody. You're just not very experienced with this, are you? Well, listen, Corbin, first of all, and she's try she's trying to like show Red that she is experienced. She's like, first of all, I got a lot of information out of Corbin over the biscuits and gravy, which by the way, look delicious. And you're preventing me from getting them. Let's, so he, he's kind of like, he like gently grabs you by the shoulders and turns you and starts shoving you out of the door. Like talk while we're walking, okay? So number one, I learned a lot of information. So there's three levels in the research institute. The first level is just kind of for like the novices and things like that. The second floor is for people who've like, you know, kind of like gone above that. And then the third floor is for people who have private access to like all the artifacts and like the brand new research. And I think the thing that we're trying to look for is in that third floor. And Corbin has access and he's gonna let us in. What? He's gonna let us in. How? Because I'm just so charming and amazing. No, <laughs> no, he like grabs you by the under your upper arm, like armpit and holds you yeah. there for a second. He's like, what do you, what do you mean we're getting in there? He said he would show us around. What did you do? I told him that we were bards and that you juggle and that I recite poetry <laughs> and that I was interested in learning more about the poetry of the world and artifacts. You know, one thing led to another and he was obviously charmed. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you. That was in character, please. I, I hope <laughs> no, the no, listener I knows that I'm not a dipshit. Uh, so can I roll an insight check on her to see if she's bluffing me? Like, is this, it's character on character. Is this okay? I think for this particular plot point, it's something that we probably should. Mm -hmm. So I would say do an insight and then, uh, Faye, go ahead and do a deception with advantage. Okay. Who do you want to draw first? Uh, let's go with you, Garrett. 17. You will roll your insight first. 17? Okay. okay. Faye, go ahead. My deception was 19. Fuck. 
On disadvantage? Oh, wait, did you have advantage? Advantage. Oh. She had advantage. Because in this point, you like you think something's up. You have no idea what it is. And everything she did just tell you is technically true. She just left out the part where she used this particular angrel that you do not know exists. So you definitely think something's up. It's not just the fact that she's young and pretty and energetic, but you don't know what it is. You you think it's going to be just one of these Ace Sedai tricks that you've seen your entire life. And that's going to lead me to say I, he's going to release her and just say fucking Ace Sedai. Do you want biscuits and gravy? <sighs> of course I want biscuits and gravy. That, <laughs> that's the stupidest question you've ever asked me. the most me. offensive thing. You want me to fucking juggle? I'll fucking juggle. <laughs> you ever ask me about biscuits and gravy again? I'm putting these swords in you. <laughs> well, then what are we waiting for? Yeah, so he's not happy about the idea of making contact with a assumably high-ranking person within this place. Uh, he's also allowed going to comment that the research center sounds a lot like the Hall of Servants with its varying levels of, um, of a hierarchy, essentially. Ray just doesn't like authority, it seems like. No, it's not that. He, he does know how to play well with others. It's not that he doesn't like authority. It's that he doesn't like, not necessarily organizations, but it's the way that organizations structure themselves or favor other people. Um, I mean, he's part of an organization, as is right now, which is, again, House Dagon. As you enter the common room, you see this gentleman who is sitting uh, next to an empty plate of biscuits and gravy. Um, he has a research center uh, name tag, and the name Corbin is on it. He is eyeing everyone warily, and he sets eyes on you, and he looks like he's staring daggers at you. And then he looks over to L, and he just softens completely, and he sort of like puts down the knife and goes back to eating his biscuits and gravy, but he's still looking around at everyone uneasily. Uh, I'm going to walk over to him and um, just kind of like, you know, not like announcing it to everybody, but very quietly says, Corbin, this is my friend Maroon. Maroon, this is Corbin. Corbin is going to uh, help us, you know, take a look at the Research Institute because we're super interested in poetry. He stands up and he looks at you and he says, are you her friend? And he's like so fucking impressed right now. Red does not move any closer. And he looks over at Al, like for confirmation that he's looking at the right person. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know what? Keep eating your biscuits and gravy. We're going to get around for Maroon as well. And, you know, I'm going to finish mine. And then once we're all done, I think, you know, if you're okay with it, we should go to the, the Research Institute. He, and I kind of look at Maroon. Uh, Maroon. I kind of look at Red. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I kind of look at Red like, eh, I did good, right? Eh. <laughs> as she's giving you like the thumbs up and like the eh, he like, leans over to you and he says it is such an honor to meet you and he immediately returns to his stool and he just starts eating his biscuits and gravy and uh, the only thing that catches your eye red is that the chef has uh, come out and she's holding a plate of biscuits and gravy uh, a cup of coffee and a mug of ale and she looks at you and she sets them all down by an empty stool which is directly next to the stool that you assume is for Al uh, and she just sort of winks at you again and goes to the back and you realize that she it's just her thing it's just what she does to let you know that you're special in her eyes can I roll a perception to Absolute see if I notice that <laughs> let's see uh, no it's a two you're just still looking directly at red like eh eh did pretty good huh <laughs> Don't ask L to notice anything. 
Red is, uh, he's very leery of Corbin. He sees the whole thing that the cook dropped down and he apprehensively watches her walk away. And then, uh, yeah, he sits down and sighs and goes to work on biscuits and gravy. And all of his morning annoyances just melt away. So as you're enjoying this wonderful meal, it is absolutely delicious. I wouldn't say it's the best meal you've ever had in your life, but it might be the best biscuits and gravy you've ever had in your life. Uh, so there, there's a fight that breaks out and one gentleman gets cut and he has eaten so much biscuits and gravy it actually bleeds out of his wound. Uh, and they run over and they say, Courtney Doll, are you okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so you're sitting there, you're eating, everyone's just sort of eating in silence, but you can see that Corbin is basically just sort of watching over you guys, just seeing if you need anything. He finishes up his plate, he drinks the rest of his coffee, and he just sort of sits there uh, kind of placidly, but just waiting to basically be told, like, we're ready to go. Uh, and once you guys finish your meal, he says, are you guys ready to go to the research center? Absolutely. One quick thing, Corbin, and I, I know, you know, we're asking a lot of you already by taking myself and Maroon to the Research Institute. The one other thing that we think is really important is that no one else can know that we're going to the Research Institute and going to the third floor. Oh, absolutely. If they knew I was going to take you to the third floor, they'd probably have me killed. <laughs> oh, like, well, I see we have similar goals. Absolutely. You're such a whitest kids you know. Uh, <laughs> like... <laughs> Oh, I'll die if they find out. <laughs> <laughs> so he sort of like perks up like the best posture you've ever seen. He holds his arms up at his sides. And as soon as he starts swinging them, he starts walking straight out the door and he makes a beeline for the research institute. Can I grab so, him right before we do that? Sure. Can I like horse collar him? Yeah. He's like, Aah! yeah. Hey, buddy. Um, you're going to get killed if people find out that you let us in the place. Uh, your words, not ours. Do we want to do this? broad daylight first thing in the morning is that a good idea there's not a lot of people there right now and to be honest i was being slightly hyperbolic they'll probably torture me and then i'll die as a result of my injuries mm. that's uh better to know l or fuck what, <laughs> who's your l Mar yeah uh marlin maribel <laughs> Uh, uh, my name is Marine. He's so funny. Yeah. He likes to call me Marlin. He is funny, and he looks at you, and he just deadpans like, you're the funniest person I've ever met. I, I will... I don't... I let go of his the back of his thing and just kind of <laughs> yeah. step back. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's um, like American Psycho, and he's choking the guy in the <laughs> So based on your opinion, Corbin, because I, I know you know the Research Institute so well, and thank you again for being our guide, what's the best time for us to go? I think either right now or when absolutely no one is there. However, if anyone notices us enter when absolutely no one is there, we will definitely become arrested and likely tortured. That sounds good. Don't worry about that. I've got my ways. Right, Maroon? Lead on. As soon as you say lead on, I'm, just... I'm like assuming the same like like jovial <laughs> nature. You see these two people walking past you. One's completely out of their mind. The other one is just grinning at you like, what's up, bro? <laughs> she just walks past you. Red, yeah, Red uh, uh, begrudgingly trails behind and <laughs> is also kind of like doing the... Uh, just keeping an eye out to, you know, make sure that the amount of ridiculous attention that is going to be brought to us is at least to a minimum. 
And also, if there's any interested parties, uh, obviously keep, keeping watch that I, he can clock them and potentially um, deal with it. In that moment, when you think that, roll a perception check. Fuck yes, I was wondering this was gonna happen again. That is a 15. Okay. I don't think that's good enough. It is not. Mm. You still feel as if you're being watched. However, at this point, this time of day, there's enough people that are sort of like moving throughout the square. Some folks going into the universities. A few of them are trickling to the research center still. Uh, and although you feel like you're being watched, you feel like you pretty much could lose yourself in this crowd if you needed to. So, Can I also roll a perception? Absolutely. Better perception, but it's not that great. It's a 16. You feel just about the same. However, you have this sense that someone is watching you. This is the first time that you've had this particular feeling. You don't feel like they're watching Corbin. You do not feel as if they're watching Red. You feel like they're watching you specifically. I'm going to pull back, kind of like break off from Corbin and kind of like fall back and like kind of like cross my arms and like look at Red and be like, see, I'm always discreet. Don't, don't know what that word means. <laughs> and as you're saying that, she just like she's been walking back. She's not listening to you at all. You guys resume this single file line. And in the uh, blink of an eye, you are at the doors to the research center. You open the doors up, and it is this large, long building. And immediately to the right is a desk where a receptionist is sitting. And before she can say anything, she begins to open her mouth. And uh, Corbin says, hello, Cora. It's nice to see you. These are very important people who I can't tell you about, but they absolutely need the full tour. And when he says that, he turns to you, and he just winks, the hardest wink you've ever seen anyone do. <laughs> So Cora's just like, okay, and she reaches down and she grabs two guest badges and she hands them to Corbin and he immediately turns and he holds them out to the both of you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Red takes us. All right. So as you pin these guest badges onto your garb, uh, Corbin looks and he says, let's begin. And he starts walking down this long hallway uh, immediately to your right. When the receptionist desk ends, uh, you can see that there is a door that appears to lead to uh, the stairwell, which you can kind of intuit because there's a sign on it that says stairs. Go figure. Uh, immediately in front of you, this hallway just runs down the length of the building. Uh, and before you get to the first set of classrooms, uh, the wall that makes up the first set of classrooms on your right and your left because this uh, hallway basically runs between two sets of classrooms the entire way. Uh, there is a stack to the ceiling uh, that contains books, and they're all about separate artifacts and research documents that have been done on them. Uh, the doors to all these rooms on the first floor appear to be open, uh, and as you walk past the first couple rooms, it seems like there's a lecture going on. There are folks that are wearing different colored garb. It doesn't seem like there's a particular uniform, um, but you get the idea that these are attendees from the university that might have some sort of major uh, that has led them over here to begin studying how to research specific artifacts. Uh, and that's how the first rooms go by. Uh, the further you walk, you realize there are eight doors on each side. 
uh, and each room is large enough to accommodate uh, around 15 students and a professor who is at the front. Um, as you go by, Corbin seems to be giving you the general tour. Uh, he's actually sounding very professional, letting you know that this is where people come to learn the different various ways in which they can begin researching artifacts. Uh, and as you get towards the end of the hallway, you approach the first room that has sort of students and no professor. In the middle of the room, there is a very large desk that has a single object on it. And there is a whiteboard similar to the whiteboards of our world, because I didn't know what a fantasy whiteboard would look like. Uh, and <laughs> it's a chalkboard it's too advanced in this city because i literally <laughs> rewrote shit from my script i was just like well this is an advanced city uh, but they I probably see, yeah, have whiteboards yeah. third floor has some fancy shit we'll get to that but the whiteboard at the very top uh has bold letters and you can only assume that this is a lab uh and you know anyone who's ever been to a university understands sometimes you have classes where they teach you theory sometimes you have labs where they just give you an assignment and cut you loose there's no professor there are only students here uh, as soon as we see this room, Corbin steps right in and he turns and he looks at you, L, and he says, this is the first room where you can actually inspect a real life artifact. And he looks over and the students kind of like look up. They recognize Corbin and they're looking over at you and they're looking over at Red. Uh, and one of the students says, are they new professors? And Corbin looks at them and uh, he sort of like snaps his head to whoever spoke and he says, you will respect them and everyone just sort of falls silent and they're just terrified of Corbin in this moment and they sort of just like go back to studying this artifact. Red nods his head to the class and just say, field researchers. Elle's going to echo him. Yes, field researchers. Roll Both roll deceptions. However, when you when Elle, when you say that, Corbin like cocks his head and considers it and then nods his head and he says, yes, field Researchers. That's a 20. Oh. Holy shit. Because I said the first thing, and I rolled a three. <laughs> you get advantage because this authoritative intimidation of Corbin has just basically made them, like, kind of accept whatever he's saying right now. Oh, okay. Uh, 19, actually, on my, on my <laughs> advantage. Fuck yeah, dude. Nice. Uh, let me roll some stuff really fast. I want to see how intimidated these people are. So Corbin rolled a nine on his intimidation, probably because he's slight of stature. I haven't described him. He's like five, six. He probably weighs a buck 50 soaking wet at best. And he just has the kindest face you've ever seen. However, he rolled a 16 on his deception because he essentially believes that whatever you're saying is true, regardless of if the information conflicts with what you fucking told him 10 minutes ago. So the object on this table that the students were around uh, that they're sort of like returning to study and sort of seeing if you all have any insights is a wide brimmed dark brown hat it almost looks as if it's brand new but if you wouldn't have known better you would think that they just sort of dropped this here to trick the students uh, but Corbin is dead set that this is an actual artifact um, as you're sort of seeing this for the first time you look back up and on that whiteboard uh, you see the words at the top scrawled, how to identify an angriel. It has three bullet points. The first one says, look for resonance with the power. The second bullet point says, delve the item for its purpose, not its composition. And then the third one, which is in all caps and underlined six times says, don't blow up. <laughs> okay, so... When I said this sounded like the Hall of Servants, is it assumed that all of these students here are uh, maybe not Aes Sedai, but wielders of the power? 
I'm very happy you asked that because in this moment, seeing these kids standing around it, you realize there were significantly more students studying theory than there were in the lab you're currently in. And the assumption you can basically make is this institute takes in folks who both channel and do not. They all have their purpose, recovering artifacts, identifying sort of the age they come from. All the things that we can do in our world are what the kids in the classroom were studying. These kids can channel. And in this moment, you feel the resonance with the particular ones that match your side of the power. And you realize that they are all channelers in their own right. So they aren't necessarily with the Hall of Servants. You know that there's other organizations that essentially teach those who can channel at a young age to protect themselves, but not everyone goes to the Hall of Servants that can channel. So these folks here are not necessarily that, but old, they can channel. How old are these kids? 18 to 21. These are freshman college. college. Uh, okay. Red doesn't really give a shit about the item on the table, but he is kind of looking around at the classroom and just kind of, he's taking it in and he's kind of seeing that this is a place that unlike the Hall of Servants, it seemed to be a little more inclusive. So L is going to walk very confidently into the room as one would as an important field, you know. Yeah, we have fucking would, Laura Croft and Indiana Jones here right behind you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I literally just, I wrote the description for this item as Indiana Jones's hat with a wider <laughs> brim. <laughs> she she kind of walks, you know, she has her hands behind her back like a little professorial walk, kind of like walks up to the item and she's going to examine it. So as you do that, you notice that the uh, oldest student in the room immediately takes out their notebook and just starts like jotting down things regarding how you're approaching the object. They're observing you very closely. Um, they're just a lady who's in their early 30s. Uh, and as soon as she starts doing that, the rest of the students notice and they all start taking out their notebooks and they're all just sort of watching you approach the item to examine it. And as you read these three bullet points, you know how to delve and you know how to check resonance with the power and if you would like to do that you can roll an arcana but i would like you to add your proficiency bonus if it's not checked off on or your sheet because it basically should be because arcana is essentially like knowledge of the power you both would have your proficiency bonus in this so wow okay so with it it's going to be a 21. okay that is awesome so you pick this up and from the outside of it, you're looking at it, just sort of turning it over in your hands and it looks like sort of a just standard brown hat. As you delve it with the power, you definitely sense a resonance um, and you immediately pick up its composition. It's made of different threads of wool and it, you can feel that as it was crafted, it had uh, threads of the power woven into it at the same time. And something about its uh, composition makes you feel like you should put it on. And as you hold it up to your head, uh, the closer you get to it, you can just sort of feel this resonance from your forehead emanate into this object. And in that moment, you realize this is a Turang reel. It's not a angrel or a saw angrel. It's not going to enhance your ability to channel, but just from understanding what it does and being able to have that sort of resonance with your ability, uh, the hat becomes transparent to you. You can see through it. And in that moment, you sort of just take it away and flip it over. And from the outside of it, it still looks to be a normal hat, and as you put it on, the students don't seem to be reacting. So you can intuit that it just sort of looks like a hat. As you sort of tuck your chin in and look through the hat, you can see directly through it, and it's almost like you have enhanced vision. Um, so as you have this slight trickle of power and you tuck your chin in, um, you can sort of see all of the people that are in this room have a slight aura around them, uh, and you recognize this as you do when you recognize a channeler. 
when a female member of the Aes Sedai embrace the power, you can see a glow around them and you can just sort of see this uh, in their innate state. They're not actually wielding the power. You can just tell that they have that ability. And for the first time in your life, you can see an aura surrounding the men in this room as well. And it's the first time that you can identify that a man can channel without them embracing the power. So this particular Terangriel allows you to see that. And as you sort of turn around, you see Corbin and Corbin has no sort of aura around him at all. And you realize that he cannot channel. Uh, and just sort of turning back, you channel into it a little bit further and you see a little bit further. And the way I can describe that is you see some of the folks in this room have no aura around them. It's almost like you switched the filter. Like you're not looking for can they channel anymore. You're looking for whatever else this can do. And when you do that, you see some folks have this sort of light around them. And it's not like the one power. It's, it's something like when you meet a person for the first time and you sort of feel at home around them. And then you see some other folks that have this sort of dark aura around them and you realize that it's maybe some bad feelings or some hostility and you realize it's not coming from you. It's nothing you're projecting onto someone else. And the best way I can describe this in D&D speak is you are detecting through this hat whether or not they are good, neutral, or evil. And this hat is essentially a detect alignment spell or a not exactly protection from good and evil, but a detection of good and evil. It is just sort of not taking up any spell slots from you is essentially the best way I can put it. Once you have attuned to this, you can just sort of wear it. But the other thing you notice while having it on your head is it is far too big for you. All right. Uh, so I'm going to take it off. Oh, actually, before I take it off, can I look at red? Yes, you can. As you turn and look at red, what filter do you have it on? So I, I actually want to see both. I would like to first see if he can channel. As you turn and look at red for the first time, you still have on this filter and you can sense it only has two. Uh, regarding alignment, um, you sort of sweep past all these folks, some with this light shining from them that makes you feel at home, some with this dark aura surrounding them that makes you feel as if they don't have anyone's best interest at heart. Uh, when you turn to red, he is the brightest person in the room. No. And like, it kind of makes you feel good. Like, you know, a little bit more about him without ever having to say something to him. Um, and I imagine at this point you would flip the switch to the other filter. Correct. Red also has a glow around him that indicates that he can channel the power. However, you cannot tell how strong. Okay. So I'm going to take off the hat and I'm assuming with that comes the powers. Correct. Uh, and she says kind of to the class and she says, you know what? This artifact is quite powerful. And have any of you put it on? They like look at each other like, no, we thought we might explode. Rule three. And they all like tap the board where it says, do not blow up. Well, did I explode? N no. Yes. And that is because I followed rules one and two. Oh, and I they like write down like follow <laughs> rules one and two. <laughs> Underlining furiously. You look for the resonance and then you delve. And once you delve and you feel that this is not an artifact that will blow you up, you can then assume that you may use it in the way that it is intended. And as you say these things, Corbin says, excuse me, did you say very powerful? Y yes. This, this cannot be with first years. Please, please, you're going to need to take this and we will decide what to do with it later. Absolutely. You are perfectly correct, Corbin. I am very sorry, students. This is something that we're going to have to take up to the third floor. So as I say that, I kind of like walk over and I hand it to Red. I mean, he takes it and he's just like, what? 
What, what the fuck does this thing do? You immediately sense the resonance just holding it in your hand. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Uh, so he's, he kind of folds it in half and stuffs it into a, like his belt loop. When you fold it in half, it almost looks like you've created a mouth and it goes, Gryffindor! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Elle's going to turn back to the rest of the class and say, uh, I'm sure that we will be able to get you something else to study tomorrow, but um, for now, uh, class dismissed. You all have a free day. Uh, really? And like half of them high five and they're like, biscuits and gravy! And they run out. <laughs> like, seven o'clock class sucks. And that's the last thing you hear as they scatter out and Corbin nods his head and he says, very well. And he seems so pleased, as am I in this moment. Uh, and he walks across the hall to the next sort of uh, laboratory that's going on. Can I just say really quick, seven o'clock class did suck. It was it the worst. It did suck. <laughs> it was fucking awful. Before we walk into this room, could I have just quick conversation with Red? Is that okay? Is that Absolutely. okay with you, Garrett? Like as you're crossing oh, yeah, the yeah. hallway. Yeah. It, it, it's okay with Garrett, but Red's not fucking happy. Oh, and, yeah. I, I'm, and I'm trying to settle in that a little bit, but go ahead. I think this whole thing is going to be just Elle like elbowing Red and kind of like talking under her breath to him. Mm-hmm. So she's gonna just going to like elbow him again and be like, I saw it. you can channel. She's going to like (laughs) smile and be like, because this is like a big deal to her, right? Like when she found out that she could channel and like other people who become like novices and things like that in parent like descend, it's like a very exciting time. So like she thinks that Red is also going to be excited about it. Uh, Listen, kid, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. No, I saw the aura. You can channel. And he fucking walks away. She's not going to give up on this, but she's like, oh, okay. All right. Well. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm trying to be severe as red, and I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to do no, that no. As, a, as a PC. Severe as red, not dick as Garrett. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he's not happy. Uh, he also doesn't give a fuck about this room with the rings, so he exits the room and goes, like, up the hallway or something like that. Yeah. So Corbin leads you into this next room. Uh, as he enters... He announces, uh, our two field researchers will be examining the artifacts. And the students kind of like perk up. They've heard what's happened in the next room because Corbin's been so loud. They also saw that everyone got dismissed. They're like, do whatever the fuck you want. Uh, On this whiteboard, you see the words, find the angriel. And you look down and the students are all setting different objects down. And there are 10 different rings on the table. And this is another example of them trying to identify purpose and not composition. So uh, just a quick question, Adam. Are these rings like Shang-Chi rings, like on the arms? Or like are these like rings like that you wear on your finger? These are finger rings. Okay. So Corbin just sort of like turns to you, like expectantly, as if you might <laughs> want to walk over there and see if maybe the DM has tossed in an item for you. Uh uh, yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to look very official, like a field researcher. I have my hands behind my back. Walk Students around. Students are still taking notes as you approach these. We're going to go ahead and use that first arcana check that you rolled because you're just feeling it. Uh, and you're starting to pick these rings up. And some of them you pick up. And as soon as it touches your hand, you're like, that's made of iron. It's made of steel. It's made of gold. And you're just sort of saying this out loud as you pick them up and just recognizing what they are. And when you get to the fourth ring, you sort of stop because you sense some type of resonance and you've never felt it before in your life. And as you delve this particular ring, this is the first time this has ever happened to you. When you delve something, you essentially have this 
strand of the one power that leaves you, touches something, and it's sort of like information is received back to you through that. And as you delve this particular ring, uh, it sort of seems like it's the best way I can describe this is, is if you were fishing and you were to cast into the ocean and then you started to feel something slowly pull on the other end of your reel, you sort of feel something pulling. And the more you open yourself up to the channeling, the more you feel this pull. And it slightly worries you that it's sort of absorbing your power until it just sort of stops. And in that moment, the delving spell works and you realize that what you've done is filled this ring. What you're holding in your hands to the Wheel of Time fans out there is a well, which means that you can fill this ring with the one power, and even if you are cut off from the source, you can tap into it and still wield until it is empty. That should not be foreshadowing or anything. Wink, <laughs> wink. In D&D in &D speak, what is that like? A couple spell slots? I would say this would give you two spell slots to use, uh, and you don't have to worry about being out of spell slots. You can also tap it before you're out. Yeah. It's just sort of like with it, this appearance, no yeah. one will know what it is. Mm -hmm. Those, that's like two charges, essentially, that you get there. Cool. Pretty cool. Uh, and I would say it's long rest, so it'll uh, resume with a long rest, just like your spell slots. Nice. Is this ring, can I wear it? Absolutely. In fact, it looks very nice. Uh, I'm going to do a deception. Uh, it's a 17, actually. It was really good. Nice. Uh, so what's up? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to just like, you, you know what? I'm, I'm going to kind of like ask one of the students who's sitting in front of me, and I'm going to hold one of the iron rings, one of the gold rings, or, and, and this ring as well, and I'm going to place them into her hand. And I say, tell me, do you feel a difference between these two? Let me roll for this, actually. Okay, yeah. She says, I don't think so. I guess I can't really tell if she can channel, right? Because I'm not wearing the hat. You can assume since she's in this room. Oh, okay. She probably can, since everyone in the previous room could. And that is the first problem. You haven't even done any delving. You haven't put the ring on. You haven't done anything. You've just looked at if you looked, you would have found that this ring is also very powerful. She nods and she like is looking at the three rings in her hand. She, she looks up and she says, which one? <laughs> uh, I'm going to take the one that I, I, I had like filled, essentially. As you pick it up, the whole classroom goes, ooh. <laughs> and I turn to Corbin and I say, you know, I, I, I understand that this is a research institute, but are these the these artifacts are just so incredibly powerful. I cannot believe that you are letting them be in the hands of the first years. I agree. We should take these to the second floor immediately. And he mechanically holds up his hand, gives you a thumbs up and winks. Uh, yeah. So I, I take the ring and I say, you know what? I, and I apologize. I, I know that this was something that you all wanted to study, but you know, I think the reason you were all struggling with this is because this is not at your level. This is like giving a, a fifth grade test to a kindergartner. So, uh, you know, today, free day, uh, go ahead and enjoy yourselves. They high five and they run out of the room faster than the other class did because uh, they were just waiting for that to come out of your mouth. And you are standing there alone with Corbin. Red, you're at the end of this hallway and you see all of these folks run out yet again. Uh, and you know exactly what has transpired in the room. And I put on the ring. Cool. So after these uh, first years all run out, uh, Corbin looks at you and he says, to the second floor. And you guys walk out. You uh, walk down the hallway. He stops when he sees Red and he says, friend, will you be attending us for the rest of the tour? 
Yeah, but can we speed this up a little bit, please? Sure. He looks over at Cora, the receptionist, and he says, We are now going to the second floor as they are esteemed guests. And Cora looks at you and she like looks back and forth between the two of you because it's not normal, but it's not completely abnormal for someone to get a second floor to her. And she says, very well, but return as soon as you're done. And Corbin says, we will. And so he walks to the staircase and he starts ascending a flight of stairs, which I pictured as one of my buildings when I was in college uh, because they are super steep. They are not wide enough for you to put your entire foot on, so you kind of have to walk up with your tippy toes. Uh, And he just ascends them uh, with a grace that shows he's done this before and also looks kind of dangerous. But when he gets to the second floor, he opens the door, he steps into the second floor, and he announces loudly, uh, we will now take an in-depth tour of the second floor. And he looks at you both with just wide eyes. And then he steps back into the stairwell and heads to the third floor. <laughs> so as you get to the third floor, Corbin takes his multipass. He puts it on what is you, essentially you like piece of <laughs> shit. a key fob receiver. It beeps. The door opens and he steps through. He sort of looks around and then he like waves you in. Uh, and as you enter the third floor, he looks at you and he says, what would you like to see first on the third floor? I'm going to actually step in front of Elle and about face and and turn to her and look down at her and say, we need to speed this up a little bit. We are not here for play along toy stuff. We need to find the artifact, which is why we're here. So let's stop fucking around with all this other crap. I mean, I agree. You should put on your hat, though. (laughs) (laughs) He turns away. If you're looking for artifacts... We have a very important one, but you mustn't tell anyone. Of course we won't. He says, follow me. And he starts walking. The arrangement of this floor is very similar to the one before it. Uh, However, there are a bunch of stacks of books on this, and these seem to be like manuscripts or research papers written about previous experiments written. You can just sort of see by the way they have their titles on the spines. There's a bunch of different stuff here that seems to be all about studying previous cultures or studying things that they've found. As you walk past, a lot of these doors are open, and you can see in there, and it seems to be crates where they store artifacts. And as soon as you get to the first room that says testing, Uh, the doors are closed and there is a digital pad similar to like if you've ever been in a corporate office nowadays how there's like iPads and everything that lets you know what the meeting schedule is Um, but it just says locked on it just to remind you Age of Legends has this technology don't fucking at me so you continue walking and you notice at the end of the hallway rather than just leading to the wall at the opposite end uh, there are two less rooms on this floor because they seem to have a double door at the end of this hallway, which essentially would lead into a room that would be twice as big as the rest that you have visited. And this is the one that Corbin is making a beeline for. Uh, and as he approaches it, you can see on the panel, it says Object 337. And he moves his multipass over it, and it makes a noise that sounds like eh, eh. And he seems nonplussed by this. And he looks back and he says, I'm, I'm sorry, this hasn't happened before. And he swipes it again and it goes, eh, eh. and he sort of examines it a little bit more. And he says, oh, I've never actually tried to use my pass for this room, but some of these locks have to be opened with the power. Let me see if I can figure out a way to open this door. G- give me one moment. And as he starts to work on it, go ahead and roll perception checks. You know I'm terrible at this. I do. But you have read with you this time. One. Holy fuck. 
How do you do this? That's a 15. I've, I've hit like seven 15s. This is literally only to read the panels on the four rooms around you right now. And you rolled a one. So, uh, Al, when you go to look, you sort of just like blink. And as you're blinking, you're like, yeah, blinking's good. <laughs> and you like look your head around, but you don't see anything. And then by the time you open it, you're just sort of staring at Corbin trying to get into this room again. However, Red, uh, as you look around, you see that three of the four doors around you uh, have these odd alphanumeric codes to them and you're not exactly sure what they are but it's s1 s2 and s3 and then the fourth door you see a nameplate on the door that says uh raman sadai very cool i'm gonna i'm gonna walk up to the doorway there so as you approach this door uh you notice it also has a lock on it uh that is very odd it has a handprint on it and uh, as you sort of look at this, you realize that it's not looking to sort of read a palm. It's sort of looking for you to put the right composition of a weave into it. So this door is actually locked with the one power. And I look back at Elle and just point it and go, this one's you. Uh, I'm going to look at it and just see if I can figure out what the weave is. So go ahead and roll an arcana on this. If you crit, I'll give it to you. Nah, didn't crit. It's a 10. All right, so you can tell that it needs a distinct composition, um, but you have no idea what it could be. Uh, it might have some sort of resonance on it based off the last time that it was opened, um, but you can't see it. However, you do intuit that maybe, just maybe, that hat that you found earlier might be able to reveal this. Maroon, I'm gonna need you to put on that hat. Uh, oh, this hat, and he pulls it out and he puts it on top of her head. <laughs> As soon as he does that, like you're seeing him and you're like just sort of thinking maybe the hat's broken because it has this really nice aura around him showing that he's a good person. Uh, and as you think that you sort of like look away from him and you look at the panel and you can see the exact amounts of spirit and air and fire that you need to weave into this to get the door to open. I'm going to like I'm going to actually put the hat on Red's head. So as she does this, Red, you, you realize what this hat does. You sort of had an idea based off of the fact that she now knows you can channel. Uh, and when she puts this on your head, you notice that there is an aura around Corbin. And he seems like he's a fairly good person. And you know that's what it is because at this point you've sort of had the hat on you enough where you understand what that does. But you notice that L does not have an aura. But then you, of course, look at the panel and you can see the exact weaves that need to be channeled into this to open it. And it is a mere trickle of the power because you know anything above that would probably blow up the door. Mm -hmm. And Elle kind of just like whispers in the background, you can channel. <sighs> he takes the hat off and shoves it back into his belt loop. It's a non-starter. Red's not going to open the door with the power, um, which he's not going to explain to her why. He's just, go, this is, open this fucking door. She's going to roll her eyes and be and kind of give him like this knowing look like I will get you to use your power at some point and then she's going to uh, make the weave to open the door. As soon as you touch this panel with that, uh, the door slides open. It reveals this large office, this desk that seems to be about 15 feet long. It has a mixture of technology on it, a large flat screen panel uh, monitor. It has uh, this uh, console in front of it. You don't exactly know how it works. You've seen the like before and it just has maps and scrolls and paper that look to be older than you can imagine. And at the center of the desk, you can see a journal. I go up to it and I'm gonna... Is it closed or open? The journal is open. 
Could I roll an arcana to see if there's magic from this journal? Absolutely. All right. As you step into the room, the door just automatically shuts behind you. Um, is it just me? I'm in there. Okay. There's a lot of things in this room. There are chests that have different artifacts within them, and you can tell that there is some power emanating from them. There's a few things on the desk that just sort of seem to be like bone or fragments of an artifact, but this journal seems to be just leather and paper and whatever ink and quill he has used to write on it. I opened the journal. So when you pick the journal up, the first page that you are on says object 337. And below that, it says lens of truth for all my Zelda fans out there. <laughs> it says uh, in this really like almost angry script is the only way to describe it. It's like he's just gouging the pages as he writes. Uh, can measure the density of the pattern itself. I believe this could be literally used to detect a Tavaren. And then below that, it has these uh, numbers, 337-1, 337-2, 337-3. And there are different experiments that it seems like he has used the Lens of Truth for uh, to try and find weaknesses in the pattern or people that he studied with it. And 337-3 uh, uh, states visited the village of Devat Duad and located the first Tavaran. Attempted to speak with her, was not allowed. Set events into motion to ensure this would not be a problem any longer. Uh, and then underneath it, it has uh, sort of like a hyphen, like he's addended it, and it's very recent. You can tell that this ink has dried probably within the last day or so, because it just seems like it has the pools at the tips where you could smear it if you wanted to. Uh, and it says, details sent to ensure this was dealt with has not yet returned. And as you read that, you hear a voice from the hallway say, Corbin? And you can just hear the heat coming from this voice. And it says, what are you doing? And Corbin just is silent as far as you can tell. And uh, having this hat on your person still, uh, you can sense that there is a male channeler of significant power in that hallway outside. Red, you feel someone outside that door take a hold of the one power for the first time in a long time, and it is unlike something you felt before. This is probably one of the most powerful people you've ever been near, and the two of you, um, Red, with your just natural abilities, and L with your hat, know that weaves are being formed that are only for one purpose, and that is to inflict maximum damage on a person. Campaign Age of Legends Downfall is played by Faye Kai, Garrett Schultz, and DM'd by Adam Diaz. For more information about us, Twats of Twats, or other awesome work we do that is unrelated to the Wheel of Time, head to the Wheel of Time Show about the Wheel of Time Show.com for bios and our social media handles. The phrase American as apple pie is a bit of a misnomer due to apples being in fact native to Asia and the first recorded recipe for apple pie being written in England in the year 1381.